Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Grant Persett. And we're going to be interviewing Dr. Richard Howe this morning. Dr. Richard Howe is a speaker, debater, and professor of philosophy and apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary. He's also the president of the International Society of Christian Apologetics. He is a contributor to several books, including the popular Encyclopedia of Apologetics, Reasons for Faith, To Everyone an Answer, and others. He's also contributed articles to various journals and other publications. You can find out more about Dr. Richard Howe at richardghowe.com. That's richardghowe.com. Again, richardghowe.com. Well, anyway, we're going to be talking to him about a lot of topics today, including atheistic arguments against God, evidence for God's existence, and many other different things. So get ready for an exciting interview with a world-renowned apologist. It's going to be a fun time, and I'm going to warn you, he has a great sense of humor as well. So get ready for a lot of fun. Without any further ado, let's welcome Richard Howe to the God Solution Show. Richard, thanks for being on the show with us. Listen, guys, thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. It's very exciting. I appreciate it. Well, Dr. Howe, before we get into any of the deep questions, I wanted to ask you, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, the short version is that even though I was born and reared in the South, in the, quote, Bible Belt, as it's commonly known, I I really didn't have an understanding of who Jesus was or the gospel. Though I always believed in God as a child, I never understood uh, my need for the Savior. But it was through the influence of friends of mine in high school that I came to trust Christ at about 16 years of age. Uh, And so it was a gradual process. I didn't understand it at the time, between about 14 years and 16 years where God was dealing with me and drawing me to himself. And I finally had to get to that point where I understood that I needed a savior, that I was separated from God by my sin. And I needed uh, somebody to take care of that. And that somebody was God incarnate, Jesus Christ. How did you then get involved with Christian apologetics? When did that happen? Well, uh, so saved at 16, growing about as much as you can expect a teenager to grow. (laughs) I was a long haired drummer from the seventies. I went off to college and began studying music and studied percussion, but decided I didn't want that as my career. Somebody gave me the idea, said, you know, you can go to college and study the Bible. I'd never heard of such thing. I thought that was the most wonderful thing. So off I go to the flagship college of my denomination, and it was my first encounter with uh, theological liberalism and skepticism within the context of religious studies skepticism about the Bible, its integrity, its inerrancy. So I, in effect, intellectually lost my faith as a 19-year-old college student, only having been saved for three years. Hmm. So that was a pretty dark night of the soul that I uh, floundered around for about a year or more. And in the meantime, uh, my two oldest brothers had come to faith. So I would come home from college on the weekends and spill all this bilge out to them that I was learning in college. And they were answering me back. In effect, they were answering me back with apologetics. And so I began to discover resources and apologists through their tape ministries, like uh, people like Josh McDowell or R.C. Sproul, and my probably biggest uh, mentor 
professional apologist was Norm Geisler. Mm. So it was, it was apologetics that really brought me back, affirming what I had affirmed before I had this crisis. But now the difference was I was beginning to understand why I believe that the Bible was inspired, that Jesus was the Son of God, that the, that the Bible is inerrant, and things like that. And so that's what's given me, interestingly, people typically think of apologetics in terms of what it can do in, in, in evangelism. And that makes sense. You're, you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever and they raise objections and you try to answer their objections. That's, that's uh, quintessential apologetics. But I'm also a big fan of what I know can apolog- that apologetics can do in the life of somebody who's already a Christian in terms of, of bolstering their faith and, and giving them confidence to begin to go out and, and boldly share their faith because they're almost excited about the challenges that might be coming because we're excited about the evidence and the answers that we have. So uh, I, I, it's sort of like what Apollos does in Acts when the Christians were being outmaneuvered by the Jews and the Jewish Christians were being outmaneuvered and Apollos shows up. And I love the way it describes Apollos. It says, he greatly helped those who believed through faith, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly. Hmm. And so it's like God had brought a lot of apologists in my life, and I saw them vigorously refute the skeptics publicly through their materials and things. And so I'm a big enthusiast about what apologetics can do for somebody who's already a Christian. Let me tell you a little bit about a student that I'm working with. I met him about a year ago, and I was sharing my faith. I work with college students. And the first thing he told me when I brought up the gospel was, I am a Christian, but I just wish I didn't have to blindly believe in spite of all the evidence against my faith. And I said, oh my gosh, we have to get coffee and talk. We began talking, (laughs) and something very similar to what you just talked about transpired. Today we met for coffee, but this time things were much different. He wants to learn how to grow deep in his faith. He wants to learn how to share his faith, and he's no longer struggling with that. I think there's this misconception that faith and reason are at odds, and those of us that have found the evidence have realized that's not the case. But what would you say to those that make that accusation, faith and reason are at odds? Yes, well, there's certainly a distinction to be made between faith and reason. But in my experience, what that distinction looks like in this sort of common way today is really a mischaracterization, because What I run into a lot is that people generally characterize faith and reason distinct such that faith is a bad thing, so that reason deals with evidence and public information and objectivity and science, and and it's rational and and, uh, deals with truth and facts. And then this mischaracterization then would contrast faith as well as just a personal inner opinion that's more private and perhaps emotionally driven dealing with your feelings, very subjective, and that's where religion falls. So it's a sort of true for you, but not for me kind of thing. And they juxtapose them that way. And I, I try to teach my students that this is really a, a mischaracterization of how Christians have understood the distinction between faith and reason. And so they, they complement one another in, in this respect. Uh, classically, faith and reason are distinguished by saying reason is believing something on the basis of demonstration. If you are being, you know, someone's arguing with you about some mathematical truth and you see the mathematical proof and you come to believe the conclusion based on seeing the mathematical demonstration, that's said to embrace it by reason. 
And so different kinds of claims may have different methods of demonstration. So how you demonstrate a mathematical claim is going to be different, let's say, than how you demonstrate the truth of a historical claim or, or an astronomical claim or a philosophical claim. But the common denominator is if I embrace it on the basis of having understood and, and seen the demonstration of it, then that's said to have come to believe it on the basis of reason. In contrast to that, faith classically has been understood as believing something on the basis of authority. So, for example, uh, you know, Andrew Wiles from Princeton University proved the, the, longest endure, the, mo the longest enduring mathematical enigma over 400 years, an unsolved enigma in math called Fermat's Last Theorem. And so Andrew Wiles proved that Fermat's Last Theorem was true. Well, I look at that as not being a mathematician. I can't understand the demonstration. So do I believe that Fermat's last theorem was proven? Yes, I believe that, but I believe it on the basis of the authority of Andrew Wiles as a mathematician. So I'm said to believe that by, quote, faith. Now, if I ever got to be a mathematician and saw the demonstration and understood it, then all of a sudden I'm embracing it by reason. So now the, that maps, I think, onto the Christian faith in this respect. I think there's a lot of things about reality, about God's creation, and indeed about God himself, that we can come to understand and believe on the basis of reason. I mean, Romans 1.20 says the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through the things that are made. But Christians, we go on to say, but there are other truths about God that have to have been revealed to us by God. So, for example, uh, you, you take Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, well, there were actually three people that died on Calvary that Good Friday, Jesus and the two malefactors. And so the fact that Jesus died on the cross is just a fact of history that can be demonstrated according to the methods and protocols of historical inquiry. So we can know that by reason. But how we know that Jesus' death is different from the other two people that died right next to him is something that's revealed to us by God. He tells us, what I'm doing through my son here on the cross is, is, is taking care of your sins, and if you trust in that, then I'll give you eternal life. Now, what we have to do is decide whether we, quote, trust God or not, because we have no way of independently demonstrating the truth of it. The, the catch, though, I think is a subtle part of it, I think, is missed on some people. True, I can't demonstrate by reason that Jesus' death on the cross paid for my sins. But there is reasons to trust that there is a God and that he's actually telling me the truth through his word. And I can do those things by reason. So Augustine sort of characterized it as, as there's a lot of things we know by reason. There are other things we trust to be true by faith. But even the people that we're trusting by faith, reason has to weigh in on whether they are a legitimate authority. So once we know who God is and the God of the Bible and the Bible is his word, then we know by reason that he's a trustworthy uh, God. And then we take him at his word about those things that we can't demonstrate for ourselves, and that's taking it by faith. And nobody doesn't do that in some areas of their life where they take truths to be truths on the basis of what they consider to be proper authorities. Right. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. We're interviewing Dr. Richard Howe this morning. Dr. Howe, thanks for making that distinction so well. And that's what interests me about you is the philosophy side. And I remember listening to you at CAA 
and you would kind of tease the apologists in the room because we have kind of standard answers for some things, but your philosophy background, you would just teach us a whole other way to answer those questions. And so, I mean, what, what is it about philosophy that you think is so important? Well, it's so interesting because when uh, I was a disciple of Norm Geisler at Dallas Seminary back in the 80s, and uh, I was, as I said, I was intensely interested in apologetics. But sadly, during the early, late, maybe late 70s, early 80s, a lot of seminaries, if they had any apologetics at all in their curriculum, were dropping a lot of the courses. In fact, Dallas only had two courses that I remember, uh, a general introduction to apologetics and then apologetic systems. And so that was, that was the extent of it. And so since that was really my desire is to do apologetics, and I wasn't getting that itch scratched by the seminary, and I wouldn't have gotten it at any seminary, Geisler, in, when I was counseling with him, said, you know what I think you need to do is more or less interrupt your seminary studies and go back to the university and do philosophy. Hmm. And the reason he said that was because he realized what I later came to learn, and that is, while not everything in apologetics is philosophical, a lot is philosophical. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, not, even, not, not only apologists, but even more, more likely people just in the general Christian community don't realize how inevitable certain philosophical questions are. And I, I generally try to convince somebody to say, well, you, you know, suppose I'm talking to a Christian that I know he believes in inerr- inerrancy of Scripture. And I say, well, do you believe in inerrancy? Well, sure. Well, you can't believe in inerrancy of Scripture unless you know what an error is. If you don't know what an error is, you wouldn't be able to know that the Bible doesn't have errors. <laughs> But the only way to know what an error is, is to know what truth is. But for better or for worse, the question, what is truth, is a philosophical question. So even a a precious uh, theological doctrine like inerrancy is impossible to sustain fully without some kind of philosophical commitment as to what the nature of truth is. And I would argue that's the way it is about a number of other significant things that we cherish as Christians, the attributes of God. You know, if you just tried to do a strict exegetical examination of how what what God is like, you will end up like the Dake annotated reference Bible that has God <laughs> possessing all these body parts. Because after all, doesn't Genesis three say God was walking in the cool of the garden, so he must have legs and the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro on the earth, so he must have eyes and the arm of the Lord is strong to towards those who fear him, so he must have arm. And I would argue, we may not be able to get into the weeds, but I would just assert for our purposes today that you cannot show that those things are figures of speech without an appeal to sound principles in metaphysics. And that's how we're able to judge that these verses of Scripture that describe God in these anthropomorphic categories is indeed figures of speech, and he doesn't literally have eyes, he doesn't literally have arms, and he doesn't literally walk. So that's what's intrigued me about the role that philosophy plays uh, in in a lot of things that we cherish, not only in theology, but more specifically in, in even doing apologetics in the first place. Dr. Howe, going on with philosophy and why it's so important, I know if I said, you know, what what's the evidence that God exists, you could probably come up with a lot of evidence and arguments, but let me ask you, what's your favorite argument to share with a non-believer? What's your favorite argument for God? Well, it's funny because as you were asking the question, I immediately thought about what I was going to answer until you qualified it, share with an unbeliever. Because if somebody just asked me 
outright, well, what's your favorite argument for the existence of God? Oh. I would unhesitatingly say, well, I really like Aquinas' essence existence distinction argument that he gives in his On Being and Essence and, and other places. The problem, though, with that argument is sometimes it's not as uh, easily accessible unless a person you know, it's a little bit familiar with the metaphysics of Aristotle and Aquinas. So, you know, how common is that? Well, you can share both of them uh, if you want. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I do. And, and in fact, here's how I think they sort of play off of one another. I, I love a lot of the contemporary arguments that you find in apologetics, like, for example, the Kalam, where you say, well, the universe began to exist a finite time ago, so it must have had a cause. And then you give scientific reasons why we know the universe hasn't always existed. Or you say, well, there's a lot of characteristics of the biological world that exhibit uh, intelligent design, like the information content of the DNA or, or things like that. And again, you appeal to scientific evidence to show the uh, information content in the DNA or the fine-tuning on the universe. And what I like about these arguments is that they, 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 I think they resonate with just the average person right out of the chute because they, they, most people have, at least in, in the West – most people have a, a great uh, loyalty and commitment to the findings of science. So as these scientific evidences point to some premises being true, universe began to exist, or there's information in the DNA, or the universe is fine-tuned, and then that premise fits into a larger argument. If the universe began to exist, it must have had a cause, which is outside the universe, or if the universe, if biology has information, it must have had an intelligence. All those things, I think, work really, really well in almost every situation. But I have noticed there is one uh, important failure of these arguments, it seems to me. And that is that they don't, in and of themselves, deliver the God of classical Christian theism. So what happens, you'll get the objection, like uh, Richard Dawkins might say, well, uh, you know, if God created the universe, then who created God? Or if God designed the universe, who designed the designer? And I think these questions are, are in, in one sense, legitimate questions to ask, because if we assert God made the universe, it doesn't follow without further argument that he, nobody made him. So what happens, in my experience, is that you give these more popular kind of arguments. You don't have to do a lot of heavy lifting in philosophy. But down the road, if people start raising objections, like, say, the new atheists, then you have to do some heavy lifting to in, interject the metaphysics to get them to see why the creator is himself not created or the designer is himself not designed. If you give the Thomistic argument that I suggested, you do the heavy lifting at the front end to get a person to a point where they understand the metaphysics of what's going on, which I haven't given the argument yet, but whatever it is. And then it more or less then carries from that point forward that this being obviously is uncreated and undesigned and is eternal and infinite with respect to all of his perfections. So I think it just, it's just a matter of uh, practical uh, judgment as to, well, what opportunity do I have? Do I have the opportunity to do all the heavy lifting at the front end and get the whole point made in one fell swoop? Or, or is this a situation where the only thing I can afford to do right now with this particular person is give a more popular argument? And then if that doesn't carry him all the way to theism, to classical Christian theism, then I can come back later on and shore those up. So that, that's, I like this, both of these approaches depending on what situation uh, presents itself, whether it's a more of an academic and heady kind of situation or more popular kind of. Now, I don't know if you wanted me to go into 
a summary of what I think this Thomistic argument actually is. I wasn't sure if that was something that you wanted to Absol- foster off onto your hearers. Or Absolutely. Not. <laughs> Would you? I, we'd love to hear that one. We'd love to read out. Okay. Right. Well, the, the 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 upshot of it is that Aquinas argues, and 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 some of this, uh, some of the ingredients of it are actually sort of nascent in Aristotle's philosophy, but it's really Aquinas's insights that bring this to fruition and turns the arguments for God's existence you find in Aristotle into the arguments for the existence of the Christian God, a classical theism of Aquinas. But the upshot of the argument basically is that uh, in, in things that we, that we see here, taste, touch, or smell, horses, dogs, trees, people, we, we notice that there is a distinction between what a thing is and that a thing is, or a distinction between its essence that's what it is, and its existence, that it is. So Aquinas would argue, well, look, uh, anything that's true of a thing, let's take myself as a human being, all right? Anything that's true of me is true of me either because of what I am or not. For example, the fact that I have rationality is true of me because of my human nature. Any human being uh, has rationality, but that's part of what it is to be a human being or risibility, the capacity to laugh, all right? So we can explain a lot of things that are true of us by virtue of our essence. There are also things, however, that are true of us that are not because of our essence, like the fact that I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. It's not because I'm a human that I'm in Atlanta. Otherwise, you guys wouldn't be human because you're not in Atlanta. Or I wouldn't be a human as soon as I go outside of Atlanta. So my, my being in Atlanta is something true about me, but it's not true because of my essence. So then the question is, well, how do I explain that I'm in Atlanta even though my essence doesn't account for it? Well, that's pretty easy because I can cause myself to be in Atlanta as I can cause myself to be in Dallas or any number of places. And you could give countless examples. I can cause myself to be wearing a white shirt rather than a blue shirt. And other things may be caused by other people. Uh, Somebody else gave me this black eye instead of me giving it to myself and those kind of things. So with those things in place, then Aquinas asks, well, what about my, my existing? What accounts for the fact that I'm existing right now? Well, he would argue you can't account for the fact that you're existing by an appeal to your essence because it's not part of the definition of a human being to exist. We know that for two reasons. One, because we know some human, we know all of us at some point didn't exist. But if our very essence was, was existence, then we would never not exist. Another reason we know is that we know of human beings who have never existed and never will exist, like, say, fictional characters, like, uh, like uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes. You say Sherlock Holmes has the essence of a human being. You can ask any number of questions about him. Does he have a blood pressure? Does he, does he have a sense of humor? And you could answer all of these questions based on the fact that you know he has a human essence, but he doesn't have any real existence. He just has a, what they call a, he's a being of reason, a fictional existence. So if I exist, but I don't exist by virtue of my essence, then my existing must be caused by something outside of me. Well, we typically would say, well, that's what God, he's, he's the cause of my existing. But it doesn't stop there, because before someone starts to ask, well, then what's causing God's existence? What I think the argument will go on to show is that if anything is existing, then something must be existing whose very essence is existing itself. It's a being for whom the essence existence distinction does not obtain. 
and that being is God. Now, Aquinas teases out, once a person understands what, his, what he understands existence to be, and let me just see if I can summarize that for you, because it's critical to appreciating the argument. We typically think of something existing or not existing as just a matter of whether it's a fact or not. There either is or isn't dodo birds, or there either is or isn't an, a planet between uh, the Earth and, and the moon or something like that. But for, for Aquinas, existing was a, a, an act. It was something that essences do. So it's not just things come into existence, but for Aquinas, while they're existing, they're, it's, a, it's, an, it's something that is being done to them. Sort of the analogy I use is like music. Uh, if, if, if you came walking in my house and, and looked at my set of drums that my wife got me for my midlife crisis, <laughs> and you said, hey, where'd those drums come from? Well, they're made at a factory in so-and-so USA, and you'd be satisfied. But if you were in my house and you heard music playing, you wouldn't ask, like you did of the drums, hey, where did that music come from? Instead, what you would ask is, where is the music coming from? Because you understand that music, this is just an analogy, music only is music as it is being caused to be music at every instant that it's music. As soon as the cause of the music stops causing the music, the music is just gone. It just doesn't exist. So by analogy, Aquinas would understand existing that way, that, that creation is not something that God just merely brought into existence. We, we certainly think that's the case, but it's something that God is continually sustaining in existence like a symphony that he's playing. Uh, so uh, you can tease that out even more, which I find interesting for maybe another occasion. But once a person starts teasing out the implications of existence as an act, you begin to see that all of these classical attributes of God that some of us still cherish, but are fading away, I think, in contemporary evangelicalism, the fact that God is omnipotent and omniscient, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, all-wise, self-existent, all these classical attributes, they all cascade seamlessly out of this application of, well, what is it for a being to be such that his very essence is his own act of existing itself? The short version of it is, and I'll, I'll conclude with this, you and I, I think, possess the act and the perfections of existence up to the contours of and up to the limits of our human nature. So we possess more perfections of existence as a human than, say, like a, a dog might. All right? So any, any creature uh, uh, that is existing possesses the perfections of existence up to the limits of and according to the contours of its nature, whether that's horse or tree or dog or human. But if you're a being whose very essence is existing itself, then it possesses all the perfections of existing without limit because it's not limited by some additional form. It's not limited by a nature like human nature or dog nature. Its nature just is its own act of existing. And that's what, again, that's what leads historically in many ways to these classical attributes of God that uh, some of us and, and, and a lot of us still cherish, but I regret to say that these are gradually fading away, even in contemporary evangelicalism. So basically, God is a metaphysically necessary being. We could not exist if there wasn't someone whose very nature was to exist. Absolutely. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed the first part of the interview with Dr. Richard Howe. You're going to have to tune back in next week for the second part of the interview with Dr. Howe. Just like you just heard, we can know with confidence that there is a God. The evidence is conclusive that there is a God, and God is a metaphysically necessary being. We couldn't even imagine a universe without a self-existent first cause of everything else. We're going to pick up right where we left off next week, so again, tune in next week for the rest of the interview. But all of this brings us to something very important, and that's that God desires a relationship with you. If you don't yet have a relationship with God, the Bible says God loves you and has a plan for your life, but you are a sinner, and a sinner cannot be with a perfect God. Fortunately for us, the Bible says that God became a man, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life on this planet, died the death that we deserve, that anyone who believes in him might be saved. If you've never put your faith and trust in him, I would encourage you to do that this morning. And if you do put your faith in him, tell him about it. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Please be my Savior and Lord. If you haven't taken that step, I hope you will. And if you have taken that step, I pray that you'd share the faith you have in Christ with those around you. Go to godsolutionshow.com to get this interview and all of our past shows. While you're there, you could leave us comments, prayer requests. You could tell us about what God's doing in your life. Maybe even tell us things you'd like to hear us talk about in the future on the show. And while you're there, consider partnering with us to expand the ministry of the God Solution Show. Well, anyway, thanks so much for listening. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Tune back in next week, and we'll talk to you then. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.